At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Greg Peterson here, and welcome to the 266th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where three days a week we work together educating and inspiring you to become part of your food revolution. Nature doesn't waste energy, and by using natural cycles to work in our favor, we can harvest both plants and fish. Let us teach you how. Just text GROWFISH to 33444 or visit IWANTTOGROWFISH.COM and you will receive our free webinar on how to grow your own fish-powered garden. Today on our podcast, we have someone who is working to bring multiple aspects of sustainability together in his part of the food revolution. We're talking to Jonathan Pereira about what is beyond sustainable. Jonathan holds a BS in geology and a master's in science education and has worked as an informal science educator for over 15 years before joining the nonprofit organization Plant Chicago. He has developed numerous innovative programs, including Green Corps Youth Program in Chicago and Green Track at Manhattan Comprehensive Night and Day School in New York. In 2012, he was nominated with his students from the Global High School for the Zayed Future Energy Prize. As executive director, Jonathan is working to bring the circular economy to life inside Plant Chicago and outward into the neighborhood. He sees the future where businesses work together to ensure both the economy and the environment are thriving. Welcome to the show today, Jonathan. Hi, it's great to be here. Well, thank you for being here. I've uh, been fascinated with Plant Chicago for many years, so I'm, I'm loving that you're here. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at now? Sure. Before I became uh, executive director of Plant Chicago, I bounced around quite a bit. Um, I think there's sort of two um, what seem like conflicting, but what I see is overlapping narratives in my life. One is doing a lot of environmental education in non-traditional environments. And then uh, that ranges from forest preserves to museums just to um, really special projects within public schools in New York and Chicago. And then the other side of that is doing a lot of live performance, so theater work and writing, social satires as well. So those are really two tracks that I was taking throughout my life. But the connecting thread through all of them was really a focus on social and environmental justice, thinking about how do we create an equitable world where not only were you just focused on um, quote-unquote uh, traditional like in, environmental issues, but also how everyone can, can benefit from, from a better world. Right. So, Jonathan, it sounds like you're in a bit of a construction zone there. Yeah, we are. <laughs> We are located in the plant, which is in a collaborative community of food businesses, all working to reduce their waste. Um, and it is and has been an active construction site for, for many years. Uh -huh. um, and construction noises pop up pretty much any time you need a quiet um, conversation. <laughs> all, so, right. Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, you know what? I'll tell you what. The, the conversation about what you guys are up to there and, and I'll use your word, the narrative of what you're up to there is so incredibly yeah. important. We'll put up with a little bit of background noise, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> That's great to hear. So Plant Chicago, t tell me what it is, and then we'll go to the why here in a little while. Sure. Well, there, there's, a mul there's multiple things going on, which can also, often be confusing. But uh, there's the plant, which is a project. It's a building. Um, and right now, that building and the project is composed of over 15 
for-profit, all small food businesses and a for-profit owner developer of the building. And you also have nonprofit Plant Chicago, and we are co-located with all these businesses in the plant, and our mission is to develop circular economies. And if you think about circular economies, um, in case your listeners are not familiar, there is actually no standardized definition for it. And mm-hmm. the easiest way for me to describe it is what it's not. It's not linear. We have an oh, economic yes. system, especially in the, in, in the United States right now, where we design products and have systems that are, uh, you know, you refer to this take, make, and dispose culture, where we take resources, often new or virgin materials out of the earth, we make something out of it, and then it's designed to be disposed, or the system is designed in a way that ends up sending a lot of materials to the landfill, or into the environment where um, the materials are not safe Mm -hmm. um, for the environment, have detrimental impacts. So in a circular system, you actually, you know, you really, you eliminate this idea of the landfill, and you use only energy from renewable resources, you recapture as many materials as possible. Mm-hmm. You can take the outputs from one process and use it as an input for another, either within one business or between businesses, which is the really exciting thing when we talk about circular economies, is having businesses work together. Yeah. There's other parts of it as well that can really help facilitate this movement away from a linear system towards a circular system. And if you, see, you think about the real problem of humanity, and we get caught on these sort of short-term problems, right? Like mm-hmm. um, yeah. climate change, for example, is <laughs> yeah. a short-term problem, if you think about it. We live in a world, in a geological sense, is, is a short-term problem. We live in a world where there's finite resources, but we are operating as if there are infinite resources to consume. So we are spending a lot of energy taking materials out of the ground, and then not finding a use for them afterwards. We're losing them into hard-to-reach places like our river. Like if, you, if you think about nitrogen and phosphorus, we lose, that, lose those into our rivers and oceans. Right. When you think about rare earth metals, right? So you have products that are designed that is really hard to recapture those. So in a circular system, or like we, we, the long-term path of humanity, like we can't, can't continue to operate that way. We have to design products in a system that is actually regenerative. It's recapturing mm. those materials and is at its core, really working to working the, making the world a better place. Yeah. The regenerative by design is the, the, the phrase that um, the Ellen MacArthur Foundation uses. Right. This goes to the core for me of the, I call it the S word anymore, the sustainability word. And, and I just want to throw this thought at you and get your, uh, you know, get your impression. And that, that is that I see sustainability as kind of a stopgap measure between doing nothing and what we really need to be doing is, you know, basically building circular, circular economies or building regenerative systems. And, and sometimes people will say to me, oh, well, is sustainability a bad thing? And I, I don't think it's a bad thing. I just think it's, it's the stopgap between doing nothing to really, you know, doing something that makes a difference. Yeah, well, so this is, this is the one, you know, core issue right mm-hmm. now is sustainability has, it's a, it's, it's a loaded word now. Yeah. So become associated unfairly with the idea of, well, like environmentalism, that it is the certain domain of the privileged for wealthy people. And in some cases, it's wrapped up with race as well. Right. Or it is the unfair label of being a job killer, which is the opposite, right? Uh, these jobs and environmental careers and sustainability, actually, that there's huge opportunities there, especially mm-hmm. compared to coal uh, right. or other examples like that. But then, you know, um, that word sustainability as well, right? Uh, when we talk about it, there's a potential, too, that when we start thinking about cradle to cradle or circular economies that those then take on that same stigma right, right. That, exactly um, certain certain sectors of the economy say no that's not good for us the benefit that the circular economy term has is that its very core is economic success the shared economic right. success yeah um, which I would argue is very much could very much be a part of sustainability, mm-hmm. but um, since it's not in the name, different people you know approach it differently. 
But there's also this real danger as well that the circular economy, if you start this movement toward it, it it will take on, again, the same idea of that is a problem for the privileged, the people Mm -hmm. who can afford to do it, the wealthy, the large businesses. um, um, uh, In in the U.S., uh, become associated with you know, whiteness as well. Right. Um, and it's not. I mean, it, the environmentalist, environmental issues often and, you know, climate change in general is going to impact lower income communities and in, in, in U.S. communities of color disproportionately. Exactly. So it really is, you know, it's a universal issue. And the, the promise really of a circular economy is that it can, the, the, the rising tide will lift all boats. And um, we have to, this is the time now to really be engaging everyone at every socioeconomic level in this process and making sure that as we design circular system, it isn't just something that large businesses benefit from or corporate executives, that there is a real tangible benefit to, to people, to small businesses in low-income communities. Yeah. So it sounds to me like this notion of a circular economy is very collaborative rather than competitive. Yeah. So what is it? Some people have talked about cooperation. <laughs> you cooperate and 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 co- compete at the same time. Oh, interesting. I've not um, heard that word before. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe maybe I made it up. Um, oh, I but, like it. Uh, to me, and this is possibly coming from the theater world as well. If you think about small businesses. I don't think it's in small businesses' best interest to like really try and compete hardcore with each other, mm-hmm. because especially with a new product or service. Because as a new product or service is delivered on the market, if someone has a bad experience with it, then they're less likely to to seek it out from another company. Right. So, the analogy in the theater world is that you have a small theater company. Um, you actually want your competitor to have a really good show because someone goes see their show and they're like, you know what, I want to see more of this. Yes. Um, I'm going to go try some other stuff out. Yeah. It's a similar thing when you have small food businesses that are maybe growing niche market products or producing niche market products. If someone's producing a bad product out there, you know, they come, you know, and look at your product and go, ah, you know, I tried that before. I don't want to try it. It's gross. Or it just wasn't good or the service was bad. So, you know, there there are limits to that, right? You don't mm-hmm. want you don't want a whole community where everybody is trying to do the same to thing, produce the same thing. Yeah. But in the plant itself, the exciting thing is is that there are businesses that are all co-located together. They're all food businesses, and you can start. You know, the success of one company actually does. You have a vested interest in making sure that one company is yeah. successful because that ultimately means that you are going to be more successful. I would guess that it would bring more people in, too. Yeah, so the, the nice partnership we have going now is the brewery is open, Weiner Brewery, which is located in the plant. Uh-huh. Our year, Plant Chicago runs a year-round farmer's market, and we do it in collaboration with their tap room. So when people oh. are coming <laughs> to the farmer's market, they go, oh, I can get beer here, too. Let me try one. I'm going to come back sometime, even if I don't want one now. Bonus. Or first, uh, people want the beer, and they and like, well, I'll pick up some beets while I'm here. Right, you know? exactly. <laughs> wow, how cool is that? So in a market, you think about the future of farmers' markets as well. It's um, depending on the location in the country. Farmers' markets are probably going to have a really hard time, especially in the next three years. Um, the, uh, if they're not, if we're not thinking about how many different things they can be. So if it's just a platform for farmers to sell their products, uh-huh. and there's, you know, there's counterexamples to this all over. Take Madison, Wisconsin, for example. They have a gigantic farmers market, a lot of local support for it. Um, that is what it is. But the smaller markets around, being creative and what you are actually doing, are you yeah. just providing a direct point of sale for farmers and for consumers to interact? Mm-hmm. Or are you actually using it as a way to create a stronger community? Yeah. So we actually, well, I mean, we have the, the brewery on site as well, but we try and do as many workshops as possible. So the cooking, we have lots of cooking demonstrations that feature products that are at the market. That's something a lot of farmers markets do right. as well. Yeah. Um, but adding a local component as well, so making sure that 
the community where we're located, which is around us primarily Mexican-American, that there are artists that represent the community mm. participating in the market and local vendors as well, um, that it becomes a safe place for people to congregate. So it can be a very um, positive community-building experience. Right. Wow. All right, so let's step back here. There's two <laughs> things going on here. We've got Plant Chicago and we've got The Plant. Uh, let's start with the plant. This is a old meatpacking plant, right? Yeah. So for we, the, the building itself is located at the southwestern end of what was the Union Stockyard, uh-huh. colloquially known as the Hog Butcher for the World, hmm. for close to 100 years from the 1860s to the 1960s. Wow. At times, over 80% of the meat processed in the country was processed in this part of the of the country in Chicago. Uh Now the building we're in was never, it was never a slaughterhouse, but it was for over 80 years from the mid 1920s to 2007 did process a lot of ham. Hmm. So there's a a lot of pork rather. Right. Ham being one of the, the products that came out of the building. When the company that owned it shut down their operations in the building, the building itself sat on the market for three years, and then a developer by the name of John Edel, um, who is the sole proprietor of Bubbly Dynamics, purchased the building with the idea of repurposing the in- existing infrastructure to create a community of, of, of food. Wow. He bought this building with the idea of doing this to it. Yeah. And oh, I would say, bless him. you know, over the years, things have evolved a bit. Well, yeah. A lot of things have happened organically. Mm-hmm namely in terms of the diversity of businesses that are in here. So you take a couple of examples. There's, there's more traditional things like a beer company and mm-hmm. a wood-fired bread company, a coffee roaster. Um, but then there's other things like a spice importer, an ice company that makes perfectly clear ice, oh, a, wow. a vegan, vegan ice cream, uh-huh. you know, these <laughs> things that... Like are not something you're like, oh yeah, I need to make sure that's a part of my system. Right, exactly. You know, they're just other companies that fit in with the ethos here and um, you know have plugged in to it as well. Yeah, the square footage of the building is about 93,000 square feet, and there's an additional two acres of, of area outside, which currently has a couple of other more traditional in-ground goers. And then um, there's a, a portion of that project outside which is dedicated to a future anaerobic digester project. It's partially completed right now. Ah. So, so you have this 15 businesses, um, Plant Chicago, the nonprofit, and, and Bubbly Dynamics, the, the owner-developer of the mm-hmm. building. Wow. So tell me, when you think about, how long have you been there as a... It will, this August, it will be two years. Two years. So you've been working on and interacting with this space for the past two years. And I'm sure you've seen a lot of change and a lot of growth over that two-year period. Mm-hmm. So thinking back over those two years, wh- what is one thing that stands out about the space that really speaks to what you guys are all about? Well, I guess there's two levels. There's the actual infrastructure, and then there's the people inside it. So Mm -hmm. I'll start with the latter one. This idea of making systemic change, you know, it relies on people Mm -hmm. doing it. So there's, there's these two parts. There's the infrastructure, which you can build to help facilitate it or become more efficient or... You know, capture waste energy for for reuse, but that doesn't do it all, right? So the people and the businesses running, the people running those businesses, really are an integral part of it, and you you need a driving force there, and that's really where Plant Chicago is hoping to mm-hmm. to fill the need is to to work with people and incentivize behavior. So because even the, the most well-intentioned people and the hardcore environmentalists or sustainability people or the mm-hmm. circular economy people, you can lose sight of these things if it becomes too hard or if it's not, if you don't see how, you don't see the economic benefit. Right. So it really does require this sort of extra force to help people along to, 
to collaborate together to make sure that there is systemic change. Yeah. Wow. Okay, cool. So one of these things I want to kind of dig into a little deeper is let's talk about food flow through the space that turns into waste flow and what happens. So let's say we have, do you have a juicing company in there? There isn't. That would be great, though. All right. So great. Great, great economic opportunity right there. Great. Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. All right. Well, name one of the one of the organizations on site that actually brings in and uses food. So let's start with Pleasant House Bakery. Pleasant House, they have a restaurant off site, just a few miles away. Uh-huh. And then their bakery is on site. So it's a wood fired bakery. So they bring in um, local, local as possible, grain as uh-huh. local as possible, which is still outside of the city. Right. Of course, because we don't have grain growing in the city limits. So they source it local, they'll mill it on site, they use renewable energy, which is wood. Uh-huh. It's a renewable source of energy. Right. And then um, they also end up aggregating lots of food scraps. So from other growers or producers in the building that maybe have things that are not edible, or not good for sale, right. we'll end up working that into some sort of dish or mm-hmm. bread product. They've experimented with using spent brewer's grain in, oh, right. in, in the bread. Um, they had a former baker there that actually made a, a SCOBY gel, uh, preserves. So oh. using the SCOBY from the kombucha brewer to make right. a, a preserves, which is actually surprisingly delicious. Wow. He also used honey on site as well. So it was this combination of all these hyper-local ingredients. Right. So then, then the yeah. bakery and the other restaurants, they have food scraps, right? Sure, but actually not that much. So nice. Plant Chicago, working with an intern from University of Illinois Chicago last year, and we're picking up on this work with Illinois Institute of Technology this year, did a material flow analysis of the building uh-huh. to see, literally capture all the materials that were flowing in, mm-hmm. flowing out, and flowing between. So to see how much material came in, how much went out, and then what was going in inter businesses. Right. And you know what was found: the two single largest materials in the building, which was like almost all of it, was water and spent brewer's grains, mm. or the grains coming in for the brewing process. Right. So all of the brewer's grains are being reused on, <laughs> excuse me, being reused on site right now. <clears throat> and then uh, the water itself, there's a lot of potential for it. So right. there's actually relatively little water reuse on site right now, although there's lots of different plans and ideas on how to do that. So when you think about, you know, overall, the materials, the, the food itself that's being produced, most of it is being eaten. It's either it's leaving the building, uh-huh. maybe because someone buy, buys it at the market, or it goes out for a special order to a local restaurant, or it's being fed to our livestock, which or Plant Chicago's livestock, which is fish and chicken. Oh. We have fish in, aqu- in our aqu- demonstration aquaponics farm. Right. And chickens outside. You know, so... It's a, the ancient version of your circular economy is feeding your food to your livestock. Right. right. Well, not, a, not a revolutionary idea. Yeah. Except, I've yeah. always thought that spent grain would make a great food for uh, fish and for chicken because it's partially fermented. So that makes it, it breaks down the enzymes better and therefore I would think makes it better for them. Well, I, I'm not aware of any livestock that is fed on a pure spent grain diet. It's, it's not a complete, it's not complete, all the sh- a lot of the sugar has been stripped out of it through right. the fermentation process. Uh-huh. We did an experiment last year just to see how much spent grain we could feed to our fish uh-huh. and found that, you know, once you went above a third spent grain compared to the commercial fish feed, the fish just didn't grow as fast. Oh, right. So there was that makes this, sense. this critical, there's a tipping point there where the fish just didn't, they weren't either getting enough or they weren't eating enough to grow. Right. So we continue to feed them about 25% spent brewer's grain uh, to offset the commercial fish feed that, yeah. that we buy. Well, and another thing I've noticed uh, at the farmer's market is that one of our bakers has 
the, the, they have spent grain bread. Now, I noticed that you mentioned that your bakery was experimenting with that. What kind of success are they having? Um, well, I, the, the ones that I've had have been delicious. Yeah. The one challenge with that is that you can't, you can't do 100% spent grain. You have to do a percentage of it. Right. Because, right? again, a lot of the sugars have been stripped out of mm-hmm. it. So, yeah, the early experience have tasted delicious to me. I know they've used some brewer's yeast as well to, to leaven the bread right. as well. So there's all these nice little connections between it. Yeah. The brewer itself, the brewery, winer brewery, will use excess things that have been grown on site. Uh, one of the outdoor farmers. Oh, yes. Max has all this chamomile. So he, you know, the chamomile is going to the brewery, right? So there's these, you think about the system that's here, it's a microcosm of what is mm-hmm. out there in right. the, the rest of the world. Yeah. But everybody's co-located. And it's not, when you talk about designing a system too, the hard thing is that we often think about like one entity trying to control it all, mm-hmm. which can also become burdensome. Oh, big time. Right. In a way, there's a freedom here where there's no, there actually is no single entity controlling the system. There's all of these businesses that are making their product well, but have to work, find right. out way, want to find out ways to work together. So I, what I see happening here is a lot of sharing of resources. So it, when, the, when, when the brewery has spent grain, do they give it or do they sell it to the bakery? Um, everything is being given at this point, mm-hmm. and that, that is an interesting Thing to think about, like creating a, a circular economy. Mm-hmm. So, in many ways, a circular economy is sort of a, a first world or developed world idea. When you go to other parts of the world, you go to like Cuba or India, and people look at you and go, "Well, that's what we're already doing." Right. Or, you know, we're, yeah. Where resources are limited, we're forced to do all of this. This is the way we think. So, in, in a way, like a circular economy is attacking an issue where we're planning for a day where resources resource are scarce, but trying to put it on a system where the resources aren't scarce yet. Right. Um, so, but what happens there is that you get a lot of informal systems where there's materials flowing between businesses yeah. where nobody's measuring it, or maybe there isn't someone buying it, or there's a bartering system where we'll do this in exchange, mm-hmm. or literally just say, hey, take my, take my extra stuff. Yeah. I don't want it. You got to use for it. That's great. Yeah. So, one thing I'd really like to be able to do is thinking about how do we well how do we measure the real economic impact of this informal system? When the coffee roaster has all this extra burlap, and a grower takes that burlap to use it as a growing medium instead mm-hmm. of something else, what's the what's the what's, how does that impact their bottom line? Yeah. When a mushroom company takes excess organic nutrients like coffee chaff or spent grain, what's What's the impact on the bottom line if they don't have to buy straw right. to grow the mushrooms? Yeah. So that in itself is a gigantic project. And one thing we're really trying to work on in the next year is coming up with a system, A, to incentivize certain behavior, but B, to also mm-hmm. start measuring the actual economic and environmental impact of right. informal system. And yeah. is there a way we can formalize it? Well, the, the one of the premises of... Uh, permaculture is share the surplus because when, yeah. we, when we look at nature nature has all this surplus and uh, unfortunately we had human we as human beings when we see surplus often it's trash right. or pollution so yeah i love that love that how you're working on that so your website says closed loop open source can you say a little bit more about that Sure. Yeah, we really want to, so the closed loop part is this idea of, like, if you're creating circular systems, you want to close as many waste loops as possible uh-huh. and localize them as much as possible in order to reduce the amount of energy that actually has to go into the process of closing that loop. So, like, thinking about the plant itself, the infrastructure here, how much within the infrastructure and the businesses inside it, how many waste loops can you close in there? The open source is that the research project that we do, which is really looking at the potential of sharing these waste streams, mm-hmm. the outputs from one business to the input for another, what is the economic and environmental potential of that? Yeah. And open sourcing that online. 
as much as possible. So we do projects throughout the year, and we'll put them online on our, our blog site. And then we'll also start partnering with outside academic research institutions as well, because there's an amazing opportunity here as you start thinking about real-world applications of some of these ideas, right? Moving away from theory to like real, you know, actually real happening. Yeah, actually happening. So we've done a lot of stuff with Illinois Institute of Technology and starting to do more with other academic institutions, reaching out to University of Chicago, University of Illinois, as I said before, and places mm-hmm. like Loyola. We're actually this weekend hosting a portion of the Industrial Symbiosis Conference Ooh. in Chicago. Yeah, nice. Yeah, so thinking about how could academic researchers from all over the world use it as a testing ground or a research ground. Right. Yeah. Wow, cool. So that's when we talk about open sourcing. Yeah. And, you know, the, the other challenge, too, with a lot of scientists right now is that they, their, their work often gets stuck in academic journals mm-hmm. um, where only other scientists are reading it. Yep. Whereas we really have an opportunity with the thousands of people that come through our facility and our program, Plant Chicago's programs to really draw attention to some of this exciting and important academic work yeah. that outside people are doing that applies and you can see it in practice here at the, at, at, at the plant or within the businesses at the plant. Right, exactly. So before we move on, I, I want to talk about Plant Chicago a little bit and the purpose of Plant Chicago. That's the nonprofit piece. So can you give us a couple of minutes about that? Yeah. So I, uh, I run the nonprofit. I'm the executive director of Plant Chicago. As of before, our mission is to develop circular economies. We really have three main program areas right now. We do a lot of education around circular systems. So we do hands-on workshops either for the general public subjects such as aquaponics, mm-hmm. composting techniques, core circular principles in the food system. And then we'll also work with a lot of school groups. So we had over 3,000 K-12 through students come through last year in our programs. Nice. And a lot of them did hands-on workshops focusing on subjects such as the nitrogen cycle, water chemistry, role of pollinators in our system, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, and circular economies as well drawing this attention, drawing connections to their actual school curriculum, but again, bringing it back to the quote-unquote real world. Yeah. So it's an opportunity for for young people to, in the city, especially in urban environments, to think about how their food is grown, how energy is produced and used, and how, and the materials, right, that we use in our everyday lives, which ones are particularly unsuited towards circularity and which ones are, yeah. are much better for it. Yeah. So that's what our education programs focus on, really making those connections. And then we have this year, uh, our market program. So a part of that is our year-round mm-hmm. farmer's market. Right. We have 26 a year, and it features not just folks that are growing and producing at the plant, but all over the south, southwest, south, and west sides of Chicago mm-hmm. as well. So... We are loc- the, the building in, in our nonprofit, we're located in, in a part of Chicago that has a low household uh, income in general. Um, it's a low income, low access community, so what, has, what the USDA calls a, a food desert. Yeah. And our neighborhood, too, it's close to 18% of the population speaks Spanish only. We're, we're really in a, a part of Chicago that can benefit from this. And it's, it's, for us, for Plant Chicago, it's really important that when you bring a project like this, there is a tangible impact in the community. So our market features a lot of local vendors that are from the community. So any money that comes from outside is actually can make it way into the, the back of the arts community. Right. And then we offer, um, we accept link cards, which in Illinois is, and we double the value on produce. So people come in, they can Whoa. get twice as much for, for what... So it's a way to counteract right. this idea. Many farmer, farmers markets, depending on what part, part of the city you're in, the produce can be a lot more expensive than you would go to the grocery store. Mm-hmm. In general, at our market, they're not as expensive, and often in season, uh, they are cost competitive. But it also it's just it's an extra incentive to get people doing that for people with link cards and seniors as well. So seniors can double yeah. their value. They're nice. really amazing. Excellent. And then uh, we have a we operate a small farm stand as well, which we're starting to feature products, project uh, products 
um, and literature that really help drive home this message of what is a circular product. Mm. So we try and do as much local as possible. But thinking about, you know, the products that are remade, remanufactured, refabricated, reused, I think everything but recycled. We don't have a whole lot of recycled material because we didn't actually talk about this much, but in a, in a circular system, and this is a, another issue with sustainability, we think one of the first things we think about in sustainability is recycling. And yep. the circular system recycling is actually the last thing you want to do exactly. with the material. Exactly, right. There's a, there's a lot of energy that goes into it. It's a very inefficient process, and, and oftentimes you get a product or a material out of it that is not as good as what right. you started with. Yeah. So not that it's bad, but it's not the starting point. And that's where I think sort of the state of environmentalism right now is like that's the first thing people think about yep. is recycling. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or being energy efficient. Yeah. Um, I'm going to buy this energy efficient product because it's energy efficient without thinking about do I need it in the first place or right. do I really need two of them? Yeah. You know, so it's, it's just shifting, the, I mean, shifting back to more traditional thought process when resources, materials, and energy were more scarce. Mm-hmm. I've so said those for, are two program areas. I'm going to get back on track here. Yeah, no, no, you're, <laughs> good. Do, you're good. We also do research. So the research, as I said before, is looking at the potential starting with businesses that are co-located with our, uh, us here at the, at the plant. And uh, this year we're focusing a lot on water and spent grain. So uh, I talked about some of the research we've done, just thinking about spent grain as fish, fish food or livestock feed, fish, spent grain as mushroom growing medium. Oh, right. We're also right now um, using the spent grain and coffee chaff to make biobriquettes that are combustible. Oh. With the idea that those could be used as an offset for wood right. in the, the wood-fired oven on site because then you're localizing even more. Even more. Wow. Uh, right. Yeah. And then we actually we have, I mean, we have our aquaponics farm. I often forget about that, but it's, it's, it, it is your you know, paradigm of a closed-loop system where the, the nutrients from the fish, the out, their outputs, mm-hmm. nitrogen, is used to supply nutrients to the plants, oh, which right. love lots of nitrogen. Yeah. The roots help filter the water and we send it back to the fish. So in that system you actually have, you know, we never lose, the only nutrients that leave the system are in the plants themselves. Mm-hmm. Or I suppose in a dead fish, right? Uh, yeah. I was going to say you're harvesting then, the fish, right? We are, we actually are not. So as a nonprofit, we've moved away from being a production scale farm. Right. So there are other growers and there are other people, businesses that we work with. We don't want to compete with them. We want to help support them. Mm. Mm-hmm. We still grow. We'll grow lots of greens, and uh, we're not actively harvesting the fish. If we wanted to do that, we'd have to feed them a lot more and have a lot, a, a much larger farm yeah. than we do. Yeah. And ultimately, we would, you know, the scale of it right now, we would lose a lot of money on it. So right. we're using the fish for their, their nutrients. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> perfect, perfect. And their charm. So that aquaponics system, when you think about the future of agriculture, growing in controlled environment conditions mm. offers a, a tantalizing opportunities yeah. to recapture nutrients, to exactly. not send your phosphorus and nitrogen down the drain where it's hard to, or into the river where it's hard to recapture. It also, they can use up to 90% less water than traditional in-ground growing. Yeah. Those are, two, those are two main advantages of it, especially when you think about the fact that 70% of the fresh water that human, humanity uses on the earth goes towards agriculture, and then it's with potential future water scarcity. Mm-hmm. Controlled environment agriculture offers a really tantalizing prospect of being yeah. able to address that problem. Yeah. So... Wow. So you've, you've, um, you've, but there's some disadvantages. There are disadvantages. You have to put energy into the system. You need pumps. Right. You need extra lights, and that requires electricity. If you can figure out how to do it from renewable energy, it's actually a really great idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it sounds like you've wrapped up a really nice circular uh, economy model in this building, and you're teaching it. That's what you do at, the, at Plant Chicago is you're, you're the teaching arm in big part we are we're definitely externally focused very much focused on educating around this yeah I'm galvanizing the community to, to 
to, to move towards this. And, so, and, and really figuring out how do we do this and how do we measure it. Right. The circular economy, there's still a lot of questions out there oh, about big time. How, do we, how, do we, how do we know that we have this system? How do we measure it? Um, what are we really working toward? I mean, you can think about it's, it's a really nice in a theoretical framework, but the practicality of it, yeah. it's hard. And it's also, right now, mostly being thought of at a very macro level. Right, exactly. And the exciting thing for me about the plant community in the back of the yards neighborhood where we're located, and eventually the city, is thinking about how do you, how do, you do it at the facility scale? Yeah. How can you do it at a neighborhood level? And how, how do you do it at a city and a regional scale? Like, how, how, where, where do we get to at a point where we consider Chicago a circular city? Yeah. And there's some core principles that the city can work towards, but it's that practical implementation of it that everybody who's talking about the circular economy is still figuring out yeah. like, how, how, do, how do we actually get there. So, right. Well, the, the really cool thing is you're experimenting and showing us. So congratulations to you. Thank you for doing that. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Thanks. So I'm going to shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you might have learned from it. Oh, well, I think it was not within the context of my job, my current job, but there was a former, I used to live in New York, and I was working with a public school there. I actually worked for a nonprofit. We partnered with public schools, but we secured, working with the students, we secured a, a, a pledge to, for $50,000 to have a solar, a small solar array installed on the roof. And ultimately, it didn't get installed. Mm -hmm. I ran into too many hurdles with dealing with a public school or public entity mm -hmm. and sort of lack, sort of lack of interest uh, and understanding of why program is important. Right. You get, you get, end up talking to lawyers <laughs> whose primary objective is like, I don't, I don't care about this. I just care about what we're going to be held. We could be held liable held, for. Held liable for, yeah. Yeah. So um, what was your takeaway? My takeaway is, <laughs> well, you have to get full buy-in, right, yeah. for, at every level, oftentimes for certain, certain projects. Mm -hmm. And there are structural systemic issues which you, you, you can't necessarily just talk your way through. Yeah. Uh, or, like, the... The social benefit and is not enough, or the environmental benefit is not, not enough. enough. Yeah. So there are real structural issues and systemic issues that, you know, it will will stand in people's way, and those types of issues are best handled at the the government level. Yeah. And if you don't have that buy-in or the understanding, it's really hard. Yeah. It's only so far that that businesses can go. I think mm -hmm. businesses definitely have to be a major part of this. They, I mean, they, they have to be the leaders in this, but as long as the government is, is not leading or working against these issues, yeah. too much bureaucracy or some cases too little or no guidance. So under-regulation is a problem, if yeah. you, if you, you know, or not providing incentives. Sometimes overregulation can be a barrier as well. Yeah. So it's, it's finding that balance. At the very least, government needs to step up and acknowledge there is a problem. I mean, that's the first, you know, we talk about it with alcoholics. We need to talk about it with the environment. <laughs> Step one, admit you have a problem. Oh my gosh. And it is, it is absolutely frustrating that we're still at that, or we've gone back to that stage of denying that we have a problem in the first place. So. We're going we're gonna to send the government to AA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you have to. You know? So what do you consider your biggest success? Oh, well... Personally, you know, my family, I think just raising two children, a mm -hmm. six-year-old and a nine-year-old, um, I think, uh, you know, when I hear them talk about what's important to them, oh, uh, nice. my daughter wants to be, a, well, right now she wants to be a botanist. You know, my son up until recently wanted to be a monster truck when he grew up. <laughs> <laughs> but both of them, seeing them, you know, they're very curious about the natural world. Mm -hmm. You're really excited um, when they come to work with me. Um, and just, uh, I think the, the pride and excitement they, they have thinking about agricultural systems and science and the natural world, it's, it's great. And it's yeah. probably, you know, I think that is natural 
it's instilled in every child. You know, my children have had the privilege of being able to to, to be able to explore a lot of that. that not every child does. Right, exactly. Nice. So what drives you? <laughs> Having fun. <laughs> Having fun? Oh, got to have fun. Yeah, I don't always get to do a lot of that more recently. Mm-hmm. Also, it, it, like really the natural world has had a bit a big impact in my life mm-hmm. and again when i talk about privilege i i have had the privilege to be able to be in very wild places and see the earth um at least with the appearance of not having human impact right on it being able to convey that to someone that hasn't maybe the best analogy is like an astronaut going into space mm-hmm. and trying to convey like what that is like to someone who hasn't, um, I, I, I think, having not been in space, I, I understand what that feels like, but I, I don't, you know, <laughs> I, you know, won't, would never know that until I went into space. Yeah. And I think it's the same thing with the natural world. If you haven't had an opportunity to, to be in a very wild location, you, you just, you don't, you don't understand right. um, what, what we're doing. Yeah. So get it out of nature. Yeah. Get out in nature. I mean, yeah. well, at the same time, too, I mean, I, I grew up on the south side of Chicago um, and, you know, love the city. I actually, you know, despite being a nature lover, I, I don't know if I can live in a remote location. I really love right. living in the city. Well, I understand that. <laughs> being able to recognize the, the, the benefits and the joys of both worlds. Yeah. Most people don't and even when they live in a city oftentimes there's all these external pressures on them right and violence economics yeah so if you could recommend one book what would it be and why uh this is gonna sound odd and i actually haven't read it for a long time but it's a book that's kind of haunted me for a long time um i grew up reading a lot of science fiction people like ray bradbury um and arthur c clark and arthur c clark wrote a book called Childhood's End, which I don't actually know if it's a really great book, but mm-hmm. the whole premise of it has really haunted me because, and I'm apologize, I, I am totally giving away this book. <laughs> the premise is the aliens come, uh-huh. and unlike most other books where they're either antagonistic or, um, you know, have some other ulterior motive, these, these aliens actually um, have a very different agenda. Uh-huh. Um, they've been sent there to bring humanity into a new era where children actually um, develop into like a new type of creation where everybody oh. is kind of connected into the psychic realm and they end up literally consuming the earth and moving on to something else like mm. literally like the dawn of this new humanity destroys the earth <laughs> and like consumes it all uses it like it's food source to move on to something else mm-hmm. and it's like this uh, the, the allegory of both destroying our earth and using it as a creation for something else mm-hmm. is like so entirely pessimistic and optimistic at the same time yeah. that it's disturbed me. Um, and I, I can't quite get it out of my head because it, it's, it's this idea that, I mean, we, that is how humanity is operating now. We're operating as right. I was going to say eat the, the whole thing, right? You know, exactly. we're going to use it up and yeah. then we're going to, Oh yeah, we'll move to Mars or some other exoplanet, you know, right. Like, <laughs> If yeah. we can't take care of this planet, I mean, we're not, why should we're we not go moving somewhere else. else. Right. Yeah, I, I, I don't know why that book has stuck with me for so well. long. And, um, but I think it is that idea that there is, within you know, extreme disaster, there is this sort of hope. It, there's a, there's a, ultimately, there's a you know, huge sadness in there with sort of the, both the death and, and recreation of our yeah. children. So what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? Oh, uh, keep having fun and thinking about how you can make a difference and how, you know, there are many, many simple ways to do that. And find out the business, you know, boy, find out businesses that you really believe in and support them. And support them. It's, it is really, it's, it, it can be a hard field to navigate these days because mm-hmm. we don't. There isn't a whole lot of transparency, which is another reason why small markets and getting to know your yes farmer your your businesses yep. and, or, or your local business as well. Right. If you believe in them and you think they're doing the right thing or trying to do it, yep. and you can enter into a dialogue with them, constructive dialogue. Mm-hmm. Those are the businesses to support. Yeah. 
and at times they're not going to be the cheapest. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Jonathan. Uh, you're welcome. It was a great conversation. Yeah. I appreciate it. Thank you. It was an awesome conversation. So how can our listeners get a hold of you? You can visit uh, our website, plantchicago.org. We have many events listed there, some great events. Well, the market every Saturday mm-hmm. and a special festival the last Saturday in July. Ooh. Nice. We have some great local bands, mm-hmm. um, blues, hip-hop, Latin fusion, uh, all off the grid, so solar-powered. Wow. And uh, we have tours every Saturday of the facility. We also... Um, except interns as well. So ah. everything, all that information should be at our website, plantchicago.org. Perfect. And you can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash plantchicago. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. Do you want to save money at the grocery store? Eat more organic whole foods? Cultivate food security and feel more connected to the earth? If so, then growing your own food is a no-brainer. You wouldn't believe how many people come to me claiming that they can't grow their own food. They think they don't have enough space, that they're too busy, or that they simply don't have what it takes. Perhaps you've fallen for one of these gardening myths. If you think you can't grow food, or if you think the only food that you have access to is what you buy in the grocery store, I have a life-changing webinar that you need to see. It's free and will help you unearth your inner gardener. I've helped thousands of people just like you learn to grow their own food. And I'm speaking from my own experience when I say that with the right knowledge in place, there is no such thing as a black thumb. With this webinar, you can begin making your garden dreams come true and start growing delicious, nutritious food for your family. Just text GARDEN to 44222 or go to IWantToGarden.com and you will receive our free webinar about the seven key factors you need to know to grow your own food. Remember, that's GARDEN to 44222 or IWantToGarden.com. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen three days a week for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, Head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.